Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. It's been a busy week here at Overcome, so Prame is not able to join us for our usual intro, so I'll keep it short and sweet. This week, we welcomed on Rachel Cowart, a research psychologist and the director of research at Take This, as well as Kate McGee, a physical therapist who is the co-founder of Performance Collective 1HP. I've been a fan of these ladies' work over the past few years. Rachel's become one of the most nuanced and thoughtful minds about mental health and gaming, and her work's been increasingly vital as more and more people become gamers around the world. Recently, she spent a ton of time focusing on gaming's contribution to extremism and how communities around gaming, and sometimes the games themselves, can become hotbeds for white nationalism, violent extremism, and other forms of hateful and dangerous behavior. Her research and voice has been cited in the likes of Vice, The Independent, and NPR, and as we cover a wider net around gaming, the internet, and new media on this show, we wanted her on to discuss some of the impacts she's seeing around the communities. Meanwhile, Kate is esports' longest-standing physical therapist. As you'll hear her discuss, she got into this industry in 2016 after gaming her entire life, and she's put her physical therapy practice to good use providing relief and building regimens for programmers all around the world. She started 1HP with another physical therapist, Matt Wu, who's become more recently very popular on TikTok, and their company recently launched the Esports Health and Performance Institute, a continuing education platform that shares theirs and their peers' knowledge with other therapists looking to get more into the gaming space. Rachel Cowart and Kate McGee, welcome to Visionaries. Ladies, how are you guys doing? Good. Thank you for having us. Kate and I have also known each other for a while, so it's nice to be reunited. It is. It's been a a little while since we've actually been in the same space, courtesy of, you know, all of that fun stuff with there was some kind of virus going around or something like that. But it's really lovely to see you guys again. Yeah, I want to actually start there because I'm I'm curious. I'm sure there are both mental, mental and physical health. I know there are mental and I'm sure there are physical health sort of things related to COVID and gaming. Obviously, gaming as a hobby increased significantly during the pandemic. And so I, let's start there and then we'll kind of break down into each different segment. How have you seen gaming be affected or gaming affect health-wise now sort of that we're coming out of the pandemic? I'm sure y'all are seeing patients who are gamers or at least meeting people who are gamers in your case, Rachel, talking to them more actively. How, how did gaming during the pandemic affect them? I mean, gaming was actually a really beneficial outlet to have during the pandemic. As you mentioned, there was a big uptick in the amount of people playing games. There was a big uptick in Twitch, both people who are creating content and consuming content. And a lot of research came out over the last couple of years about how it was a really great respite for people to have a playful, social, interactive space that they could engage, you know, six feet away from the people around them. So from a mental health perspective, it's actually been more beneficial than anything. Yeah, and definitely we've seen we've seen kind of an interesting confluence of physical health concerns. I mean, barring the obvious of there's a pandemic, we also saw a massive shift in the amount of people who are working from home. So all of a sudden you've got people with spaces that were not designed for ergonomics or for posture. Which, you know, not saying that every office space is either, but at some point it was probably, you know, within the scheme of what they planned out, having to make a very rapid adjustment to home. 
And for a lot of folks, because gaming was one of the few ways you could remain socially connected to your friends, as Rachel pointed out, there was this issue of you're spending so much more time doing it and you haven't necessarily prepared your body to handle that, which is like, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, gaming or office work are like, you know, you got to train like you're a strong man to be able to chuck a ball over a bale of hay, but it's still a physical demand on your body. If you're doing like an endurance, repetitive endurance activity, then yeah, eventually that's going to fatigue things. And if that endurance activity is the only thing that you can do to stay in touch with your friends, then yeah, of course you're going to do it and just deal with the fact that you're in pain now. Yeah, I want to ask about that a little bit, Kate. The, you know, your industry is known very well for talking about repetitive motion injuries as it pertains to gaming. You know, a lot of people doing the same motions on controller, on mice, et cetera. Obviously, office work can breed that, but gaming is sort of that on steroids. It's intent, much more intense. Are you seeing patients now who are suffering a lot of those various different ailments from repetitive motion because they sort of over-indexed and played more games throughout the pandemic? specifically? Oh, definitely. A lot of the folks that we, you know, we've been seeing over the past couple of years have said, you know, well, you know, I was, I was always a casual gamer, but like I really ramped it up a lot during the pandemic, which, you know, makes sense once again, but that sudden ramp up without the time to prepare is the thing that does it. The body can be prepared to take that on. Um, but when we look at the difference in APM in actions per minute of office workers versus gamers, especially when we start looking at some of the more classically high APM games, you know, if you start looking at your StarCraft 2s, if you start looking at some of your first-person shooters, if you start looking at, you know, if you got into WoW rating, oh, God love you. You know, the kind of stuff that you are doing regularly and frequently, that adds up over time. So it's it's not so much just that there was an addition of the amount of movement someone was doing. It was a very sudden shift from doing mm. it a little bit to doing it a lot. And you can make that transition gradually and be fine, which is why so many pro players don't have injuries. They trained up to that point. They practiced more and more and more. And then they got to a level where they're grinding for 12 hours a day, which still isn't healthy, but they practiced enough that they could get to that point. But if you're suddenly going from, you know, oh yeah, I play with my friends, like, you know, I don't know, two hours a night, a couple times a week to I game for like four hours a day now, because it's the only way I can talk to my friends. That sudden ramp up is just, it's your tissue is not prepared to take on that strain just yet. Rachel, in your position, you know, part of what you've talked about throughout the pandemic and, and some of the work that you've been cited in from a journalism perspective is around sort of that uprise in, in extremism, frankly. And, and some of that is gaming adjacent. You know, I think about earlier this year, the Bloomberg reporting that the Buffalo shooter was a Discord user and was uh, by himself, to be clear, but was in a Discord sort of using it as a journal to plan out this more broad attack that he or that he went on to do. But, you know, you talked about gaming as an escape, but gaming can also, unfortunately, and it's, I don't necessarily personally think it's the games themselves so much as some of the communities around them. Gaming can breed these tendencies and can capitalize on people that are lonely to, and make them feel welcome in communities that are not so great, whether that be, you know, political extremism or white nationalism or whatever it may be. Did, did you see a significant uptick in that throughout the pandemic as well? People finding these not so savory communities and, and finding themselves welcome while they're alone and stuck inside? There's not research specifically pointing to whether there was an uptake in that, but you can make the assumption based on the fact that there was such a big uptake in the amount of people participating in these communities. And you really hit the nail on the head. It's not so much about the games themselves, although I think there is a conversation to be had about content, but the research far more points to being in a community 
that espouses these beliefs. So we know we have the stereotype of the gamer as being someone who is isolated or socially inept. And we know that the stereotype is that it's a stereotype. It's not really reflective of the general person who plays a video game. But we also know that people, a lot of people, especially over the pandemic, turn to games for community. And if you end up happening to be in a community and where hate is normalized, which is what we see in a lot of a lot of gaming communities, unfortunately, I've been a gamer my whole life. It pains me to say that, but we do know that hate is normalized to a certain extent in gaming communities. In turn, you know, you are who you, your friends are. And I always tell this story about when I was a kid, my mom said, don't hang out with the kids smoking cigarettes behind the gym. Totally hung out with the kids smoking cigarettes behind the gym. Then I started smoking cigarettes behind the gym, right? So who your community is, is it affects how you see and how you perceive the world. So if you get embedded in a community that normalizes hateful belief, inevitably, you will adopt that behavior. And that is a risk factor to then leading into more radicalization, more radicalized ideas, and potentially offline violence. For those that aren't familiar, I mean, I'm a journalist. My media consumption is extremely high, the amount of things I'm reading and sort of how people get connected to things. But for those unfamiliar, when you say hate, we're not just talking about swear words or slurs, et cetera. It's much deeper than that in belief. Can you explain sort of more broadly what, what you're saying in, in your research? Yeah. So when people talk about toxic gamer behavior, it really runs a gamut, right? It can be trash talking to doxing, which is sharing personal information online, to swatting, which is calling you know emergency services falsely to somebody's home. So when I'm talking about hate being normalized, I'm talking about hate speech, hateful slurs, sexual vulgarity, uh, harassment, harassing behavior, whether it's temporary or prolonged. The more extreme forms of what I call dark participation, you can call it what you like, um, that happens in gaming spaces. I'm not talking about somebody saying, you suck, get out of here when I play first person shooter games, because that's what they tell me, because I do suck at those games. That's, you know, generally seen as an accepted part of gamer culture, generally taken with a grain of salt, generally does not have any long term impact on the person but if we see like hate speech and hateful slurs and and sexual harassment and racism and all of those sorts of things that's what i'm talking about. why do you think gaming specifically for that has become sort of a haven you were talking about it being somewhat normalized in a way what what do you think gaming specifically lends itself to in that regard so yeah uh it's a complicated question i have a working hypothesis or two but one of them is that games have long been socialized as spaces for a specific user. So from a very young age, gaming tend to be socialized as a white male activity. And then over time, that led to more white males joining the industry, which they still do. They're the predominant uh, demographic within the industry. And then it creates gaming content that is tailored to that demographic, which makes sense because those are the people who are making games. But that then perpetuates a cycle that if you do not fit a certain mold, you are not included here. And this is why we constantly see hate and harassment towards female players, hate and harassment towards LGBTQIA players. We know that hate in gaming spaces is intensified among any member of a marginalized community. And I believe it's because we are stuck in this cycle of, you know, the culture being co-opted by a specific group of people, which isn't, I would say, inherently negative if it didn't also come with hate and harassment of anybody else who was joining the space. Well, and it comes with the resistance when it changes, right? When you see sort of something as simple as some of the game developers introducing characters of color, characters of different sexual orientation, et cetera, and the way that the fervor that that's met with, right? Like that's that's something that, that's the easiest example right. to identify it, right? That's a perfect example. Um, like in The Last of Us 2, when they said the female character's body was too muscular and there was like a huge outpouring 
of just the the girl character wasn't feminized enough. And it's like, okay, come on. I was particularly yeah. mad about that one because uh, that is literally my body type. Like, hello, I look like <laughs> climb rocks. That's what my body looks like. Well, see, and that's what's interesting because for a lot of fe- women who play games and women make up 45% of all game players, we were super thrilled to see like a strong female character. And we don't, you know, talk about how we dislike the strong male character with disproportionate body types that are so not achievable, right? I don't know. Well, even in the biggest games of the world, this is a problem, right? Like, you know, League of Legends, for example, has a ton of sexualized female characters more more broadly disproportionately so i think they've gotten a little bit better with that with age like the newer champions are much less so but a lot of the early ones certainly are and you know and it's interesting to sort of see from a culture shift perspective i think a lot about sort of how things like the activision blizzard lawsuit that's ongoing right now will change that because now this is like the some of the first repercussions for an industry that has allowed sort of that behavior to fester in offices, et cetera. You know, the Riot Games reckoning happened too, and they've more recently settled their own case. The Activision Blizzard one is so blatant. It just feels like every other week there is a woman coming forward with either a lawsuit of her own or an account of her own about what happened to her there. And, and you know, it's when it's happening inside the company, no, no shit, it's happening inside the game too. Right. Which is why I talk about it being normalized within the culture. And, and, to be clear, when I say normalize, I say that because when you look at the research, looking at the prevalence of the rate at which people have experienced the more extreme forms of behavior, so hate speech, sexual harassment, and doxing, it is more common to have witnessed it or experienced it than it is to have not. Yeah. And then we also have, you know, this, all of the stuff you're talking about within the industry as well to add to that. And when you're talking about normalizing too, you're not just saying that people are saying, oh, we're totally okay with sexual assault. It's more like a pattern of here are the smaller things that got us to that point that we've accepted as, oh, these are normal and acceptable things. Um, the the kind of the same way that with physical injuries, you you know, you go from zero to a hundred by, by steps. You don't go right. from zero to extremism just by encountering one terrible, you know, 4chan board. You get all the way there by an increasing degree of of putting the frog in boiling water, of slowly warming up over time yeah. and getting used to, oh, this is how it is and that's okay. Which, you know, we see in, in smaller yeah. amounts, even working with some of the the players that I've worked with. And I am not suggesting that I work with players who are, you know, sexual harassers or sexual assaulters or anything like that. But the degree of comfort that a lot of players have working with some of my male colleagues and the amount of time it takes them to develop the same degree of comfort working with me, the extra degree of attention I have to pay to how am I presenting myself and relating to this individual? Am I going to take mm-hmm. like a motherly role or an authoritative role in order to avoid being, you know, hit on or, you know, seen in that particular light? Those are things that male colleagues don't have to consider. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the players. It's, you know, probably a lack of, of kind of just, it's a lack of normalization of, oh yeah, we relate to men and women in a very similar and respectful fashion but it does mean that i face a different experience when working with players sometimes right that is a perfect example just like you know it all goes back like the easiest way i can talk about it is women don't turn on their microphones when they play games like that there's the perfect yeah. example of, of where it all begins and then it just escalates from there yeah one of my favorite stories from dota is the time that i did turn on my mic and it actually went well it's a story i still tell eight years <laughs> later 
Well, I mean, it's even it's even worse when we see people like Jason R, the Valorant and former Counter Strike pro, you know, got and a deservedly a lot of heat last summer or last fall when he maybe even been earlier this year. My brain is like all mushed together over the past two years, but nonetheless, uh, would would sort of quit Valorant and dodge Q anytime a woman would show up in his chat because you know in his reasoning was that it was caused issues in his marriage and and whatever else but you know it's yeah it doesn't excuse the actual practice of just quitting a game the moment you hear a woman come over voice chat which yeah You know, one thing I wanted to talk to the both of you about is education. Kate, 1HP, and you all just launched a new sort of education platform that you all have been working on for some time to educate gamers more about physical health and sort of precautions that they can take, how they can sort of self-treat, et cetera. Providing that guidance, which you all have been doing behind the scenes as doctors for some time. But the and sort of, Rachel, in your line of work, too, and even in mine, I think the biggest problem is getting people to actually engage past the games. And, and that is like the, the hardest part of because functionally it is it is all content, be it whether it be sort of psychological mental health or whether that be physical health or even where that's journalism. You have to get people to take that extra step to go from I play this video game, then, you know, I engage in whatever's around it. Then I engage to this like very specific part of it. And I, and I want to ask you all, how are you thinking about that? How are you engaging this audience to better educate them? And, and I would love both of y'all to talk about that. All right. So I'm really excited to talk about this because you're right. We did just launch a continuing education platform, which is a thing I've been dreaming of, dreaming of doing since getting into esports. So there's, there's kind of two aspects to answer here. One is talking about the, the Esports Health and Performance Institute, the continuing education platform. That's really designed for a lot of our medical professionals, our performance science folks who like want to work in esports, but don't necessarily know how to get there. Um, I'm very upfront about the fact that part of why I have succeeded as much as I have in esports is, yeah, I've worked my butt off, but also I came in at the exact right time and there were no other PTs around. It was a confluence of, of work and really good timing. And that's not replicable. The really good timing isn't. You can put the work in, but if you don't have the timing, it doesn't necessarily happen. So we created this continuing educational platform to really make sure that folks who want to come in to work in esports have an understanding of what working in esports entails from the really basic to how you properly spell esports and know there's not a dash and the S is not capitalized to, you know, let's understand the peripherals that that players use. Let's understand the different game types. Let's understand what a season looks like for, for different game titles to common injuries. You know, let's look at a postural assessment. Let's look at how to do it in person versus remotely. So you're going to do a lot of remote assessments. These are just there's so many things that a traditional medical education doesn't and can't cover because esports is its own niche and, you know, by extension, gaming is as well. And what we saw a lot with the players that we worked with was there was such a big hurdle to buy in of what we were trying to do because there was just the only exposure they'd had to medical professionals was people telling them put on a brace and rest for a while, mm. which is terrible advice and doesn't actually work, by the way. And there was an understandable resistance to somebody coming in and trying to change things, even if it was folks like us who did know gaming a little bit better. So we launched the Esports Health and Performance Institute literally last week after working on it for two years to provide a better foundation for folks who are trying to get into esports. 
I will shamelessly plug the fact that it is at ehbi.org in case anybody wants to check it out. But our goal there is to make sure we have medical professionals who can actually relate to gamers because the only way you're going to get that education to stick, whether it's with me, whether it's with you, or whether it's with Rachel, is to meet people where they're at. And so sometimes meeting players where they're at to kind of provide that education means I have a player that I worked with at Team Liquid who was already lifting three days a week and he wanted a running program, which was awesome. I had another player I worked with who was like, I don't like gyms and I will never go to the gym, but I want to do exercises. And so we set up an at-home, like 15-minute-a-day, high-intensity interval training program. And then we have folks who are like, I have absolutely no interest in doing exercise. That's not going to help me. I need to grind for eight hours a day. And then the focus there isn't so much, well, let me force you to do a thing as it is, all right, well, what are you getting out of that grind? What are your goals when you're doing that grind? Is there something structured or intentional about it? Or are you kind of just playing until you're too tired to keep playing and keep focusing? All right, so you're playing till till you're too tired. What if we tried stopping before you were too tired and maybe doing some VOD review instead? Or what if, you know, we looked at what your sleep habits look like if you're feeling really tired by the end of it? Oh, you feel better when we adjust your sleep and you're not falling asleep during VOD review in the morning? Oh, great. And then all of a sudden we've got buy-in and you're listening a little bit more. But it's just the kind of thing where there's people get to professional level mostly on their own, maybe with some friends, but certainly not, you know, the way that traditional sports players get to a professional league. There's not much in the way of development. You probably never saw a teammate, you know, get injured, go through some kind of rehab process, do a return to play protocol and then get back on the field with you. Those are just not models you have available to you. So of course you're resistant to somebody trying to change, well, I got here on my own. What do I need you for? And so a lot of what we do, even more so than the actual physical intervention, is education about about the why and the what and the how. And it turns out when you tell players that the things that you're doing with them are going to make them perform better or let them keep playing for longer, they're real into that. You just have to get to the point first where they believe you. And that involves building rapport Mm. and speaking the same language and meeting them where they're at. Exactly. Meet them where they are. And, you know, understanding games is a cultural competency and it comes with mental health as well. We talk a lot about seeking mental health support and people say, oh, I went to a therapist and I said, I play games. And they're like, oh, games are the problem. Let's take away the games. And it's like, no, no, let's talk about games as part of our life. Let's talk about what purpose they're serving. Are they serving a social purpose? Are they helping us with our stress relief? Are they just fun? And darn it, we should also have fun. That is an important outcome. Fun is an important outcome. People forget that. But the work at Take This and the work I do as well is all about meeting them where they are. Do they want written resources that they can access at 2 a.m.? Do they want a YouTube video? I started a YouTube channel in the height of COVID because everyone needed a hobby. But also it turned out to be a great way to meet people. People love quick little six-minute video content is a lot more accessible than my 20-page academic articles, although Jacob has read them. So, you know, those are accessible too. (laughs) Maybe to specific groups, but I think it's really important to have a diffuse set of resources and also just, yeah, understand that games are an element to consider when we talk about mental health resources, when we talk about physical resources, and it is a niche, it is a competency to have. Yeah, I think the the meet them where they are or where they are is something all three of us share in common in in our work. You know, you know, Kate, I like saw sort of his TikTok takeoff, your co-founder Matt Wu has done a lot of physical therapy related like stretching and everything else around gaming and his TikTok has become quite successful in, in its own right. And I think about that a lot in terms of like, I'm tired of the argument that people don't want nuance. I think that they just don't want nuance in the same way it was delivered 10 years ago, five years ago. It's, it, it's different means of communication. But I do truly think that people want 
want real nuance actually I, yeah absolutely yeah Absolutely. And I think people want the space to have those nuanced conversations without judgment and prejudice and fear of being, you know, like of being seen badly or of it having negative impacts on them. I'm very carefully avoiding canceled. I really fucking hate that term. Sorry if I'm not allowed to swear on your show. Same. Uh, <laughs> All good. I, I'm surprised I made it this far, honestly, without swearing yet, because I think, you know, facing consequences for having done a bad thing is is not cancellation. It's It's just how people and social relationships work. But, you know, there is a big downside to short form content, especially super short form like Twitter, where everything is on a stage and everything can be taken out of context. And you've only got 280 characters to say the thing you're trying to say anyway. It's not great for nuance. And I think it's something that all of us who by necessity in esports and gaming have to be on on, on Twitter do absolutely struggle with, which is why I really love that there are these opportunities for longer and more in-depth conversations. I love Discord partly for that reason, because you can have those longer conversations and clarify and go back. And also it's not always, sometimes a private conversation is better. And sometimes public conversations are yep. useful. They both have their time and their place. There's, look, I absolutely recognize the value of public eyes in terms of getting somebody to engage in healthy behaviors more. All of us, like the number of players I work with who sit up straighter when I walk in the room because they know I'm observing them is a lot. I'm not saying that that's a long-term solution, but in the short term, it's a great way to practice that good behavior. And then there's times where a private conversation is the way to go. If a player is dealing with, you know, a wrist injury that's exacerbated by the play that they're doing and they are a professional player and their livelihood depends on this, they're not necessarily going to want to talk about that in front of their teammates, around their coaches, around the staff, around people yep. who make their decisions about does this person get to keep playing or not? So there's a time and a place for public and private, and that in itself involves nuance. You know, one thing in the both of y'all's work that I'm sure you're, you encounter, because I've heard it from the reporter perspective, is getting corporate corporations to buy into what the both of you do. In the case of UK, I, I, that is, cannot tell you how many times I've heard of a PT banging their head against the wall because an esports team won't take them seriously, or they make an assumption about what they make or what they want to make, and they just like, yeah, it's it's a budget item line for them. It's not about the well-being of their players. It's it's not about sort of the longevity of their players' career and setting up sort of, you know, physical health regimens and physical health practices or actually hands-on physical therapy to help those players have longer careers and not have repetitive motion injuries. And Rachel, in your case, I've actually experienced a little bit of this firsthand. I, I had a, a public... A, a question about trust and safety for Discord last year around journalists, and I didn't even get an answer, which is extremely disappointing around sort of how they would react to legal subpoenas to clarify, which is because I have a lot of sources that want to talk to Discord, and I try to get them off the platform as much as humanly possible because I don't think it's as safe as WhatsApp or Signal or any of the others. But I can imagine in your case as well, you know, like there's, you're probably hitting some walls where where people are wanting to are not taking sort of the mental health things that especially when it comes to extreme extremism, et cetera, as seriously among corporations. How do you all both think that you break through that barrier though? Like it, other than just being, I guess, consistent and annoying and just like <laughs> coming back to it. Is there another way to sort of break through that, that obstacle in both your cases? I mean, <clears throat> being consistent and annoying helps, I guess. No, <laughs> 
I find that for me, the mental health discussion is a lot easier to have than the discussion about extremism. You know, extremism and radicalization is an uncomfortable topic to discuss, and it's a lot easier to just kind of pretend it doesn't impact you, even though the research very much clearly shows that it does. My strategy with that has been, you know, just keep talking about it until you can't ignore it anymore. So thank you for giving me this platform today to talk about it even more. But when it comes to mental health, I find actually that it is a lot more accepted now than perhaps it was before the pandemic. I take this, we've done loads of outreach with AAAs, with indies. We've done listening sessions after these lawsuits dropped at, at different gaming companies. We've provided, you know, loads of resources, more than 40 workshops in the last two years about mental health and mental wellness. So I find like the pandemic, obviously awful in every way, but it did make the conversation of mental health more at the forefront and even within games specifically. But I would love to steal some strategies from Kate if Kate has some good strategies. Uh, So I've got a bit of practice at that, definitely. Uh, At least some part of it is, like you said, being persistent. But we also, we meet corporations and organizations and teams where they are as much as we meet players where they are. So, you know, if a team hasn't entirely bought into the idea that, well, we need to address, you know, health and performance holistically, that is physically, mentally, with sleep, with nutrition, maybe the only thing they're interested in right now is the mental side of things. Okay, great. We'll meet where you're at. We're going to start right there. And as they're working with the players, the players are going to open up and talk about some of their injuries and, oh, it might be helpful to have a PT around to help with this thing as well. Or physical therapy is working with a player. This happened with someone I worked with about two years ago. They were a Korean player. So we had a translator involved. We had a medical translator, which was always fun. And the the report that had been given to me was the player had bilateral, both hands, hand and finger and wrist numbness. And it was worst when he was playing. And it sometimes happened when he woke up. And when I talked to him with the help of the interpreter, it was, well, this really only happens on tournament days and he never sleeps well the night before. And this doesn't ever happen when he's practicing. Which sounds a whole heck of a lot like a performance anxiety issue, more so than an actual physical neurological issue. So I ended up referring to a psychologist that I knew who worked in South Korea. So there's there's definitely a way to meet teams where they're at by recognizing what level of services are they ready to invest in and actually buy into. A lot of it also is using kind of the fact that public perception is a big and important factor for teams. There are absolutely, in, in my belief, there are, there are teams that their initial interest in working with us stemmed mostly from this will look really good PR-wise. Now, I absolutely think there were people within the organization who wanted to do it, you know, for, for altruistic, you know, like genuine like health and wellness reasons. And that's the reason we end up sticking around. But I am, I am absolutely not above accepting a contract because a team wants to look good. We'll also make you feel good. But I will absolutely take that initial vain impulse in order to get us there in the first place. But I think really one of the best ways that we've gotten companies, organizations, teams to listen to us has been just having worked with players consistently. A player goes to a new team and they're like, wait, we don't have a PT here? I want him to help me out again. My wrists are going to keep hurting me otherwise. Same thing goes for even working with non-pro players. I got my start working at like Local smash tournaments. My very first tournament was Pound in 2016 in Virginia. I worked with like eight different top tier smash players, mostly because I made a joke about hating ICs and Hungerbox overheard it. And then they were all like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. We should listen to them, which ended up with Beyond the Summit having an interest because the players were like, can we have this person take care of our hands at this tournament? 
So I think a big part of it for for what's worked well for us has just been genuinely and authentically engaging with a wide variety of people. Some of them end up getting us ins somewhere and some of them don't. And that doesn't mean that they're any less valuable. The only way that we make a change in esports, though, is by working top down and bottom up at the same time. And so we've always done just that. I think the other part of that as well is that you so much of what you all are asked to do, and you just said this in both of your answers, is patch care. It's it's rooting out a problem after, whether that be the listening sessions you're doing in the wake of lawsuits and sort of scandals, Rachel, or in your case, Kate, like I have carpal tunnel or I have a repetitive motion injury, come fix it, rather than taking the precautionary steps to not develop that in the first place. And so I, I like I'm hopeful that that will change. I think, Rachel, you're right that there's a certain I think it's almost generational a little bit that there's a certain generation, call it mine, the, the Zoomer that takes mental and physical health a little bit more seriously, which is good. I, I think that's like really important. Part of that is that it's advertised to us all the damn time on every social platform ever and in various different capacities. But, you know, I, I am hopeful that that will change. But right now it does feel like sort of people in power at a lot of these corporations they they want to deal with the problem after not with not with the sort of root before right which is not ideal it's better to be preventative than reactive generally speaking for everything but you're right i think it is generational you know we have generational fears of new technologies i talk about it a lot moral panic you know there was the fear of comic books and the fear of elvis his hips and and the fear of video games and also, you know, mental health. My father's generation most certainly would not talk about mental health ever. <laughs> uh, and then you have like me who, you know, I talk to my seven-year-old all the time, like, how are you feeling? What are your emotions? Let's label them. Yep. Uh, and that's going to have an impact as they grow up because these conversations do need to become normalized because mental health and physical health are two parts of the same whole. And there's no reason why it should be treated separately. So I, I am also hopeful. I share your I think I'm I'm also hopeful and, and practically so based off of kind of the growth that I've seen over the past couple of years, particularly in esports. When I started out, we, it was very much, what's a PT for? And then it was, oh, I have an injury. I should come to you now, right? And then it was, wait, if you fixed my injury, I bet you could keep me from getting injured. And then it was, oh, I bet we could use that whole like, you know, physical and mental health thing to performance better. (laughs) And it's been this progression. And one of the things that I really love about working in esports, and I've really been burned on on kind of traditional healthcare models. One of the things that I really love about esports is we're getting to build a system that works for us. Is that slower? Yes. Is it more difficult? Yes. Does it take more work? Absolutely. So yes, the downside is that we have to build the system that works for us. But the bright side is we get to build a system that works for us. We don't have to have a system Mm -hmm. imposed by any other existing models. And like I said, there's definitely barriers and hurdles and difficulties with that and upcoming economic recession being among them. Yeah. But in general, the fact that we've gotten to shape what health and performance look like in esports on our own terms the fact that so much of the research that's being done currently involves players, involves the people being studied to a far greater degree than has been done historically, those things suggest to me that it's reasonable to be optimistic about the long-term growth of esports medicine and esports performance as fields where we can genuinely make an impact. Yeah, I think the other thing that at least worries me when it comes to health and well-being is sort of the 
I don't want to call it the gamification of of health, but it kind of is, you know, like there there's a little bit there's a lot of like subscription program types, et cetera, that like try to turn health into a product. And I think that's not going away anytime soon. Some of them are worse than others. Uh, but I think that that more broadly concerns me with sort of younger generations and their access to both mental and physical health care. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. There's like health and fitness gamified things that I really like. Like the Zombies Run app, I think is a tremendously fun way to like run when you know that like the first mile or so you're gonna be super bored and you don't want to do it. You get a cool zombie apocalyptic storyline that you're, you know, you're a heroic runner saving the world. That's a great way to get somebody into it. I care a little bit less about how somebody gets to health and fitness, but only in the sense that most of the time when people find their way there, they'll find a thing that's sustainable for them. I don't love, I think, I think I don't love the commodification of, of health and fitness, which I think might be a thing that you're describing for sure. Sure. I'm fine with things making it fun. I'm fine with things making it silly. My goal is for people to find what thing do you enjoy doing that keeps you moving whether that thing is running or weightlifting or Zumba or Oculus or Ring Fit, whatever thing you enjoy that will keep you active, I'm good with. But yeah, I don't love the, I don't love some of the models out there, including the traditional health insurance model out there of like a financial reward for doing healthy things. Like it's, and I'm sure that, that Rachel can absolutely speak to this even more, but there's there's a difference between internal and external motivation, between intrinsic and extrinsic, between the reward generated by your own satisfaction and the reward given to you by some outside force. And the goal is always, at least when it comes to physical health, to develop that internal motivation, the desire to do it for your mm -hmm. own good. And then even past that, to do it because you care about yourself, because you love yourself, not because you hate your body, not because you are punishing yourself for what you ate not because you absolutely have to look like one of the fitness influencers you follow, but because you care about yourself, you care about how you look for your own good, and you care about how your body moves. And that kind of, that internal motivation is definitely harder to develop. And you can kickstart it by gamifying it initially, by having some external reward system to start. It just eventually has to progress to internal. Yeah. Internal, intrinsic motivation is the long-term solution like external motivation is, is very short-lived but also what you're talking about is a phrase that i i like to use from dr celia hoden which is dark patterns so when any sort of app or game is prioritizing monetization over the experience of the player that's when you have a problem so zombies run is great <laughs> but some of those other ones Yeah, I think it's also really interesting to think about the the influence the internet has. I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot about this more recently. The the intro or the uh, impact, and this is kind of like confluence of both of your lines of work. The impact that social media has on those motivations and mostly negative on the mental health side of things. You know, you mentioned sort of the beauty influencer type stuff. Kate, I mean, I've been reading a lot about more recently about how Instagram is affecting young women by showing them these beautiful models, et cetera, and saying like, this is the body type. I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that this is the body type. This is what you want to achieve and how it's breeding mental health disorders, you know, eating disorders, et cetera, 
making people do physical activity that's not healthy for them more broadly by overexerting themselves, et cetera. Like it just to sort of align to this. Oh, there's also um, the... That, that very much worries me. There's also really the extent to which those are utterly unobtainable standards. And at this point, I'm not just referring to the fact that a good deal of them are in fact taking steroids. Like, spoilers, a whole bunch of your favorite fitness influencers are 100% taking steroids of some variety. This is not a hot take. This is lukewarm at this point. But also, you know, the progression of video and photo filters. One of the my favorite Reddit subreddits that I belong to uh, is the Instagram reality subreddit, which is basically like, here's how to recognize patterns of photo manipulation so that you can keep some degree of sanity about is does this body actually look like that? But, you know, kind of even more than just the the trickery um, that is inherent in kind of those video and photo based platforms. If you don't know how to use social media, social media is going to use you. You are the commodity. Social media is designed to use you. You are the product. If you are not paying for that service, you are the thing being paid for. You are the product of that surface. Your, your attention, your engagement, your interest, your beliefs, your feelings, those are all fuel for a platform. It doesn't exist to serve your interests or to facilitate connections or to protect you. It exists to make money. And if you're not paying, yeah. you're the product that someone else is paying for. And it's super easy to be used. Correct. Like platforms are designed to facilitate that. There's so much extrinsic reward built into all of these systems. And that's deliberate. Anything other than being the product requires effort, whether it's generating a following or converting followers to click-throughs or purchases or having nuanced conversations or stopping to recognize what a human body looks like and whether yours looks fine. Spoilers, it probably does. And like one of the tenets that I try to live by is the unexamined life is not worth living. And anywhere that I spend significant amounts of time merits examination. And I don't think, even for me, when that's one of kind of like my core identity components, it's really, really easy to get sucked into buy this, look like that, try these things to be this way, aspire to something other than what you actually are without stopping to think about, is this what I actually want? And so there's, there's plenty of perfectly good ways to use social media. There's plenty of really good and healthy things about it. I've met some fantastic folks, you and Rachel included. You know, mm -hmm. I've made really great connections. I've learned things. I've met a whole bunch of researchers from Europe that like, we talk about esports research now and it's grand. And it's absolutely possible to to use the platform for, for good. And it's every bit as possible for the platform to use you. And, and I think that's, yep. that's the thing that you were referring to in, in the, the commodification and the gamification of, of you becoming the product of the healthcare. What she said. It's yeah, exactly. And, and truly, I mean, you, you see like, this is totally unrelated, but to your point about being the product of social media and, and sort of its impact, like you see, it's not moving the needle when people are quitting Twitter after the Elon Musk acquisition. What's moving the needle is when advertisers start pulling their dollars because those are the customer, not you. Like you, you are the product. The customer is the advertiser that sells. Yeah, that's Twitter is selling ads against um, to your eyeballs. So I think that that's uh, that's really interesting. Amazingly, this actually ties back to a thing you were talking about earlier with how do we get teams to listen to us? A good deal of the time, it's it's money. If if they want their players, you know, to stay with them and their players want that kind of support, well, they're going to lose money if they're losing those players. They're going to lose money if they're not winning tournaments. And you might help me win tournaments. So we want you here. Yeah, you are correct. When I talk about mental health, it's always what's the business case? That's what, what, what which is what about the human case? But yes, what's the business? Case? Productivity. 
Uh, well, you were talking about the upspike too, Rachel, and and people advocating for mental health care, corporations advocating for mental health care during the pandemic, and it's like, well, we don't want people to quiet quit and just check check out, right? We want them to actually be engaged with their with their workplace. So how do we do that? We offer them better mental health benefits, right, and mental health, better mental health leave, et cetera, so they like aren't stuck in their home offices all day and can actually like yeah you know disconnect. But that's and get more patchwork. Correct. Like I describe it all very often is like when I talk about content moderation, because I talk a lot about the darker sides of the internet, I, I always refer to it as whack-a-mole. Yep. Like you're not actually fixing the problem. You're just trying to like, get down. yeah, there will always be another problem. Someone who's, who's as someone who's fought a lot of physical health battles this year, there will always be another problem. It, it doesn't stop when it rains, it pours. So, yeah. So Prime from my team had a question. And then I think Sammy has one as well. The first one from Prime, which is, how do you think VR impacts general mental and physical health of gamers as we get more accessible and affordable options, even though meta up the cost of Quest 2? I have less to say than I think Kate will, so I'll go first. Any of the impact that we see in the video games we have now in a 3D space, we can hypothesize that it will be intensified. So whatever potential social benefits we have will be intensified in a space that has better visual and behavioral fidelity but they're not ubiquitous enough in order to do a consistent amount of research in order to assess that. But that is, I think, a safe assumption to make. So pros and cons when it comes to VR. VR is, in fact, a great way of gamifying exercise. There's a whole bunch of things you can do that are really good workouts there. And honestly, the injury profile that we see with VR is a lot closer to traditional sports because you're doing those very similar whole body movements. One of the biggest downsides right now of VR is that for a decent chunk of the population, VR gives you really bad vertigo which makes it inaccessible, me included, uh, which makes it fairly inaccessible, um, even besides, you know, the financial cost thereof. I think we're more likely to get significant benefits using AR, augmented reality, than we are with pure VR type stuff. I certainly don't think that VR is bad. I think it's 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 a way that somebody could find to engage in health. Um, but I think the the thing that we really have to be prepared for is uh, we're going to need medical professionals to take it seriously when folks come in with with VR-related injuries. And I would really love if we did not get a repeat of the Wii era, wherein a whole bunch of orthopedists thought they were the funniest people alive, writing articles, research papers with titles like Musculoskeletal Weetal Medicine. And, mm-hmm. It was bad. Rachel, it was terrible. The lit review for that was awful. It was very painful, almost as much as the injuries were. But I think I think overall VR is probably going to be a net benefit for physical health as long as at some point they resolve that vertigo issue because until then it's just going to be inaccessible for so much of the population. Again, even leaving, leaving aside the significant financial barrier to entry. Yeah, I think this will be the first holiday period that we see the Quest 2 actually become a pretty dominant device in its own way just because they've marketed the hell out of it throughout the entire year. And it's even though the price went up, it is still the most accessible of those devices. So I'll be curious to sort of see what happens in the following years after this as we as the VR population gets bigger. I mean, it's still very niche, but I do think it will be bigger than it has been before because it is a good holiday item for a lot of people this year. I just bought one a few months ago and I I do very much enjoy it. It does not make me uh, does not make me motion sick. So I'm uh, one of the lucky ones. But and I have uh, to your point, Kate, I've found it very useful in, in physical activity. Beat Saber is a very, very fun workout. So, it's a workout. You will sweat with Beat Saber. Yes, no joke. Yes, yeah. I got I got the um like now there's an official metal one, but the activity pack that like makes it where I'm not like sweating all over the cloth fabric. <laughs> and I'm sweating on like something I can actually clean with a wipe. 
I also recently got like the um, eyeglasses inserts for the Quest 2, which is really cool too, like matched my prescription. So I don't have to wear these because that's also uncomfortable. But um, okay. Yeah. So Sammy, do you want to go ahead with your question? Yeah, um, I actually have two, one for Rachel and one for Kate, but I'll start with the one for Rachel. So a lot of people tend to use video games as a distraction, and I can say that I'm guilty of that. Is there any way that is healthy to use video games as like a way to escape from, you know, some mental health issues? Or is that would that be an issue? It like an unhealthy way to like distract yourself from what is going on? I love this question. Thank you for asking it. I'm gonna get a little bit on a soapbox. So there is a, escapism is almost always framed as negative when it comes to video games. And I have a little bone to pick about this because I always say like escapism into a book or escapism into my favorite Netflix series, The Witcher plug is seen as something positive. Like I say, I binged The Witcher this weekend and people are like, cool. And I'm like, I spent eight hours playing The Witcher 3 and they're like, oh no, like what were you doing? Like something's wrong with you. And it's really wild that it has such polarizing reactions. But if you go into the research, you know, there is a distinction between positive and negative escapism. If you are escaping into a video game or a good book or a show for a distraction, awesome. We all need that. If you are escaping to avoid something to the point at which it's causing negative repercussions in other areas of your life, then that is is the problem. So escapism is not inherently bad. We all need a break from work and life and stress and COVID and kids and whatever. And games can be one part of that puzzle, no no doubt, even though it's often perceived to be negative. Thank you. And I do I do have a question for Kate. So we were talking about physical injuries that happen to people who play games. And for me, I'm a very healthy young adult. And unfortunately, I'm reaping what I sow at this point with not taking care of like my wrist. I've developed carpal tunnel and I can feel it in my hands now. So is there after the point of developing some sort of physical injury from you know, playing video games. Is there any way to take care of it at home? Um, I guess get it better. Because I, I heard earlier that wearing a wrist brace wasn't good. And that's kind of how I've been taking care of it. So is there a way to stop the how far um, it's developed at this point? And this probably goes for like a lot of people who play games because I know quite a people, quite a lot of people who have developed something like carpal tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So a couple of things I'm going to address here. Thing number one, not all braces are bad all the time. It is very much, it depends. It's a time and a place for a brace. I use wrist braces, for example, when I'm going to be working at a tournament and doing a lot of manual therapy at night, I will sleep with wrist braces on because they keep my wrist in a neutral position for however many hours I actually get to sleep which is a little bit of time that my wrists get relief. So braces do have a role. There's also a time and a place for wearing a brace while you're playing. But generally, if you're going to wear a brace while you're playing, you don't want a hard, rigid one. You want something more like a lightweight neoprene compression one, which is less about rigidly keeping you in place and more about cueing your body to do the things it's supposed to do. The muscles to fire, you know, the wrist to move, the swelling to not happen. So there's, there's a time and a place for a brace. They're not always evil. Two, as common as people think carpal tunneling is in esports, it's actually fairly rare. 
true carpal tunnel, um, so kind of primary carpal tunnel, is an inflammation of an area where a nerve runs through in your wrist, puts pressure on that median nerve, and you develop these nerve-related symptoms. Nerve symptoms can often look a lot like tendon symptoms. That sensation of like burning or deep achiness or even tingling and numbness can happen both with nerve pain and with tendon injury. So it's really important that when you get a hand injury assessed, you're getting it assessed by somebody who's able to do that differentiation for you. And yeah, theoretically, pretty much any medical professional should take the time to do that for you. Practically, if you really want to make 100% certain that you're going to get somebody who knows what they're doing, either check somebody who's gone through our, our EPI certification, go to an occupational therapist who specialize in upper extremity injuries, or look on the certified hand therapy website, uh, find a CHT, and they can find someone who is a certified hand therapist near you who might be able to do that assessment kind of a little bit more in depth as well. Now you asked about at-home stuff. Yeah, there's absolutely plenty you can do at home to help manage, prevent, and even make sure that, you know, this doesn't come back for you. For a lot of folks who have injuries, you're going to end up having to do what I call the BAMs, your bare-ass minimums, the things you absolutely have to do every day in order to keep yourself functional and not develop pain. I've got some BAMs that I do for my hip. I, had, I have a, a congenital hip condition. So there's like three to five exercises where if I do them every day, then I have no problem with my lifting, with my running, with my sitting while I work. If I'm not doing them after about a week, I'll start to notice, oh, I should have been doing those things to take care of myself. So yeah, there's plenty of things that people can do at home. Most of the time, the thing that makes the most difference is not in fact stretching, but working on muscular endurance. Again, because a lot of the injuries that we see are related to tendons. Um, that tendon function is less about raw strength output and more about repetitive motion over time. Repetitive motion over time equals endurance. And the way that you work on endurance is with low weight, high repetition exercises or with isometric exercises, which is where you contract, but without going anywhere. So if you want like an actual thing to do specifically, isometric exercises, wrist extension. So trying to like bring your wrist up against your other hand, holding that for 10 seconds, 10 times is a, a thing that most people are going to do well with. Alternately doing it with a dumbbell and taking the time to go kind of four seconds up, three seconds down through that motion. And then doing it the opposite way, wrist flexion, bringing your, like you're about to knock on a door. That's the wrist flexion motion. If folks are interested in seeing more exercises, then can easily be described over a Twitter space or a podcast. We do have a very helpful YouTube channel for that. It's youtube.com slash 1hporg. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, there are more than a dozen others too, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. While you're on there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps others find the show. Special thanks to Prem Thottamkara and Sammy Dag for their help with this episode. We'll see you on Friday. <laughs>